Okay, so we are beginning Luke's Gospel, Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. Let me read the first four verses and then we'll talk a little bit more about Luke and the contrast with the different Gospels. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Okay, so this man Luke, uh, it, it is often written that the man Luke is, was probably a Gentile. Uh, there's real controversy on that. There's many others that think that Luke, like all the other writers of the Gospels and the books of the New Testament, was, was a Jew and not a Gentile. So that, that, that is still a real question there. Uh, Luke has a certain theme, like the other Gospel writers have a certain theme. And Luke, even in this portion, says, Luke says, many, in verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. So many people were compiling accounts of what happened regarding the life of Christ. It wasn't just Matthew, Mark, and now Luke, and much later on, John. There were many people that were compiling. But we only have been taken on as Scripture certain individuals of those accounts. Uh, some people that think that, that uh, Matthew was the first gospel and then Luke wrote. Others think that it was Matthew and Mark and then Luke wrote. We don't know. We don't know the order. But what we do know is that it says in the, in the, last, in, in the last portion of, of John's gospel, we do know that John's gospel came much later. This was written from, from uh, a time in his life when he was much older. But we do know that there was a body of information. And John says in his Gospel that if everything that Jesus had done were to be written down, he thinks that even all the books in the world couldn't contain it. Well, if that's the case, that Jesus did that much, it's as if there is a group of, of, of uh, data about, about which, uh, which summarize the accounts of Christ. And each of the Gospel writers is taking portions of that data out and putting it into their Gospels because the Gospels are relatively short. They're not long books. They're actually very short books. And so what happens is, Matthew might be writing his account and he takes point A and point C and point D. Might be the points that he wants to stress. And then Mark may come along and he might take point A and point B, something that that Matthew never took. And so that's why you will see different stories in the different Gospels. If all the Gospels were exactly the same, you know what that would speak to? It would speak to collusion. It would speak to the fact that, let me see what you've written, let me write what you wrote. They're all writing from different perspectives, just like two people seeing an event. Sometimes Shireen will talk about an event that I was at. And I have a very different perspective than my wife has of that event. Because she was, she was talking about, you know, she, she will talk about women's clothing at that event. 
and the colors and the, and, and the colors that they put on the tables and the scenes. And I didn't even notice anything about that. That meant nothing to me. The color schemes in the room or the clothing that people was, were wearing, that has nothing to, to do with it. And it's not that my account of it is more accurate than her account. They're just looking from different perspectives. And what you will find in the Gospels is there is no controversy. Between the four Gospels, there is no controversy. People will say, oh, the Bible is full of controversies. I will say, okay, show me three. Well, you know it's full of controversy. I say, okay, if it's full of them, you could certainly find three for me. And usually they can't find any because they're absolutely clueless. This is just this, this nonsensical sort of comment that means absolutely nothing. Which is, which is often the case when people start talking about the Bible because they've never even read it. But um, Luke has his certain perspective. So, so Luke, has, in his thematic approach, he's talking about Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, he's talking about Jesus as the Messianic King. Luke is talking about this, but he's writing from a Greek perspective. And he is compiling this data. He says in these first four verses, he is not an eyewitness. Actually, Luke, Luke was accompanying Paul through uh, a large portion of the book of Acts. Luke was in Jerusalem for two years while Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea. And, and this, it's a good chance that this is when, when Luke compiled all of this. Luke, remember, is our writer of also of the book of Acts, which we've covered before in this class. Because he says here, Inasmuch, in verse 1, as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he says these are handed down to us. He's talking about the apostles. The apostles were eyewitnesses. In fact, in the scriptures, to be called an apostle, you have to have seen the Lord. That's why when Paul is giving trying to underscore his apostleship, he says, have I not seen the Lord? That was one of the criteria on which apostleship was based. Paul didn't see the Lord Jesus specifically. He wasn't, if he saw him uh, uh, when Jesus was physically walking on this earth, that we don't know. But we certainly know that Paul saw Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. It says that, Jesus appeared to Paul. It was on that, that road to Damascus that there was this appearing. But then Paul also uh, sat under Jesus' teaching. It says he received from Jesus specifically. Jesus himself had taught Paul. Paul saw Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it outlines the people who saw Jesus. A test of apostleship is they had to have seen Jesus. And you will see people today saying... You know, I've been at events and, and I'm meeting people and they'll say, well, I'm Apostle so-and-so. Well, people can say they're Apostle so-and-so. That's fine. But in the Scripture, it had a very specific meaning. They saw Jesus. And every one of the Apostles that we know of, where their, where, where their life was spoken of, it also spoke of their horrendous death. Of the twelve, uh, of the 12 disciples... Remember, one of them hung himself, but then there was another one put in that, in, in that position. That was Matthias. But of the ones that we know about, they were all killed except for John. All of them went to their death 
except for John. John was banished to the island of Patmos, and it was there that he wrote the book of Revelation. And why was John the only one that was not killed? And it could be because John was the only one of the twelve that didn't leave the foot of the cross. John had nothing to prove to himself or to anybody else. John was there with the women. He was there at the foot of the cross. All the others fled. And all the others died, proving that indeed they would die for the Lord. John himself had stayed there. So it's interesting that John's life was never never cut short in that respect. But being an apostle is not something you want to be called easily. Because some of these apostles were flayed alive. That means their skin was peeled off them while they were still alive. This is not accounted for in the Gospels, but it's accounted for in historical writings, how they had to suffer. It was not easy being an apostle. But anyway, Luke makes reference to this. He says, these were eyewitnesses and they handed down these accounts to us. So, Mark, who wrote Mark's Gospel, John Mark, he was not one of, he was just a, a young man at the time. He wasn't one of the twelve, but he indeed was part of this ministry. He's just a young person at the time. Matthew was very much a part, as was John, very much a part of the ministry of Jesus. Luke would, had received this and he gathered information. He was a, an historian. He was, a, he was actually a physician by training, an educated man. And scholars who understand writing say that Luke was a tremendous historian and an educated man just by the way he wrote the book, uh, uh, the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And here it says specifically, Luke is writing this, and it says that, it says, it seemed in verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So this guy Theophilus is probably the one who underwrote, in other words, wrote the check, paid for Luke to do this research. And this was not uncommon in the day. And Luke was writing from a Greek perspective to a Greek audience about Jesus, the, Jesus, the Messianic King. This is what he's writing about. Jesus, the Messianic King. But he's writing from a Greek perspective for this man, Theophilus, who's, who's probably paying for this. And he says, I want you to know the full truth about this. And so remember, what Luke is doing, he looks into this circle, into this box of all the things that accounted for that Jesus has done, that he's heard about, and he's drawing certain points to look from his perspective, to write a gospel from his perspective. If, you, if you're just going to write exactly the same gospel, why do you need four? They're all writing from different perspectives to different groups of people. And so... Um, Matthew, in fact, writes about Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. So Matthew is writing specifically to the Jews. So that's the the way uh, uh, Matthew approaches this. So he has a little bit of a different approach. Um, Since he's writing to the Jews, since Matthew writes to the Jews, and remember what we're going to do in the book of Luke is we're going to follow Luke, but then we're going to be taking from the different Gospels to, to fill in different details. Matthew, because he's writing to the Jews, he's constantly quoting Messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. If you're writing to, to Romans, for, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter much quoting, quoting uh, uh, Messianic prophecy. doesn't mean as much to them, but to the Jew it means a whole lot. So Matthew, writing to the Jew, quotes Messianic prophecy much more. And in fact, he deals with the issue that many 
many Jews will ask today, they'll say, if Jesus is the Messiah, why don't we have world peace? Because one of the things that it talks about in the book of Isaiah is that the Messiah would usher in world peace. And so what, part of what Matthew deals with is, he's saying that the Messianic kingdom is not yet set up. And so that's one of the things that Matthew is teaching. So, so, uh, um, but Matthew, the other thing that Matthew covers, and we will certainly cover this, is he's writing in light of the pending judgment that Rome is going to destroy Jerusalem. Just as Jeremiah wrote of the impending judgment that Babylon was going to destroy Jerusalem, Matthew writes of the impending judgment which came in 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew writes about that and talks about the, the uh, unpardonable sin, the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, which he very specifically says is for this generation. Jesus said multiple times, for this generation. This is not a sin, uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that you, and, that you and I can commit. There were many people that, that say things bad about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and later on come to salvation. This is not something that you and I can commit because it was specifically for that generation, that unpardonable sin. But we'll deal with that as we get near the end. Uh, Mark is writing, uh, uh, Jesus the Messiah, the servant of Jehovah. And he's writing this to the Romans. Uh, so he deals, he, he deals uh, uh, in, with Rome, in, in writing about the Romans, it's interesting, uh, the Romans liked, liked people to fulfill action. They liked things to happen very quickly. A man is given a commission. He fill, fulfills that commission as rapidly as possible. And you see that Mark writes from this perspective because Mark will write, he'll say, straight away or forthwith or immediately, depending on which translation you're reading. Again and again, more than 40 times he uses that meaning that he's fulfilled this, where when Luke is writing from the Greek perspective, he's writing very much the humanity of Jesus, how he was perfect in his humanity. The other thing that, that, that Luke covers, is Luke covers these, these interesting things, that, that uh, um, some of his concerns are, A, Jerusalem. He writes a lot about Jerusalem, Jesus' teachings about Jerusalem. Another one of his sub-themes is the Gentiles. Jesus' interaction with the Gentiles, what he had to say about the Gentiles, and, and uh, uh, the way he worked with, with the Gentiles. And this would, would make sense, because Luke traveled with Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. So Luke had captured this vision to the Gentiles, this outreach to the Gentiles. He captured this vision. So you will see again and again, he's dealing with the Gentiles. The third sub-theme that he has is he deals with women like no other gospel writer deals with. He tells us in Luke chapter 8 who it was that underwrote Jesus' ministry. You think, you know, who's supporting Jesus' ministry if he's for three and a half years walking around preaching the gospel? Yeah, he can, he can, he can turn, he, he, can, he can take a little bit of food and make a lot of food. He can do that. But someone was underwriting this. It talks about how they had a money box. Who that, that in fact, uh, 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 Judas Iscariot used to pilfer it, it says. But who underwrote the ministry? It says a bunch of rich women. And it says uh, 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 one, of Ju one of Herod's steward's wives was one of the women, for example. And he speaks specifically. And his interaction with women. Luke records a lot of this. Luke, in fact, records what's happening in Mary's life. What she's thinking. How the angel appears to her. What she's pondering. When the angel comes and speaks to her. Matthew never deals with this. 
Matthew is writing to the Jew. What the woman was thinking is irrelevant to the Jews of that day. And, and you know, even today, to show you some things that, that are retained, in Israel today, a woman cannot divorce a man. A man can divorce a woman. I mean, so you still see that, that if, if today, imagine how it was back then. Matthew never gave much of an account of what was going through Mary's heart. But Luke does. So Luke deals very specifically in, in Jesus' ministry to women, how they ministered to him and how he ministered to them. Being from a Greek perspective, in the writing of this, being from a Greek perspective, he is recording this much like we would like it to be recorded. We like our history. As Americans, as Westerners, we like our history to be recorded chronologically. This happened, then this, then this, then this. And Luke is the only one who says, up front, I'm recording this chronologically. Because in, in, verse, in verse 3, it says, to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So we will follow the Gospel according to Luke. If there's a different order in one of the other Gospels, we're going to follow... Luke has the consecutive order. None of the other Gospels is that important to them. This is not important. You say, well, isn't, isn't chronology important in history if you're telling a story? It depends on your perspective. If you're a Westerner, the answer is yes. If you're not a Westerner, the answer is no. Not particularly is chronology important. You know, I, uh, um, for example, w- once we were going uh, to help to send support to uh, an indigenous missionary in Africa. And on one of the statements, it, says his a- it said his age was 27. Another one of the statements, it said his a- age was 25. And those two statements came in at almost the same time. And I thought, uh-oh, this is a scam. This is a scam because they can't even get the age right. There must be a mistake. So I talked to the lead missionaries who were from the UK. I said, you know, one of these things, it says his age is 25. Another one is age is 27. What's going on here? And they said, look, Jim, you've got to understand. In Africa, the exact age of a man, they don't even know their exact age. The day wasn't recorded when they were born, and all they know is a, a general time in which they were born. And since then, I've met many people that that's the case. If you look at older people from the Middle East, they don't know their exact birth date. All they know, it was born, you know, they were born in the winter time, and it was cold out. It's all that they remember. So for us, not only the, the exact birth date, but the exact birth time is important. To the minute is recorded. I mean, soon we're going to do it to the nanosecond. I mean, we have that ability now to record to, to this level of accuracy. But even to us, the nanosecond is not important. If we have it to the, to the nearest minute, we're okay, right? But there will come a culture when if it's not recorded to the nanosecond, that they're going to think that it's not accurate enough. So chronology is very important to us. You will see in the temptations, the order of the temptations when Satan comes to tempt Jesus will differ between the different Gospels. Luke has the proper order in which they occurred. So don't let it upset you that it's a different order. That's not a contradiction because the one writer, the order is not important to him. He has a story that he's telling. The story is far more important. And remember, in other cultures, they're not looking to catch this thing. Uh-oh, there's an error. They're not looking for this. It's the general story which means more. But thankfully, we do have one gospel writer who's writing this in consecutive order. 
as he did with the book of Acts. Because this, this helps to fulfill what we like. And so we'll look at this order. Uh, John, much later, comes along. and He's writing not to the Roman, not to the Greek, not to the Jew. He's writing to the church. So John is looking at this, and all three of the Gospels had been written for quite some time before John writes his Gospel. So why does he feel compelled to write a Gospel? There's already three different accounts. Because he's seeing what's going on in the church, and how the church is maybe moving in some of the wrong direction. And so he's recrafting this in a sense, saying, let me fill in some more information that I know from having walked with Jesus that's going to bless the church. And so he's talking not about the humanity of Jesus, which Luke focuses on a lot. Luke will say, and Jesus was hungry, and Jesus was tired. The humanity of Jesus. Uh, uh, John is focusing very much on the divinity of Jesus. Underscoring to the church that yes, Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. And you think, well, they knew that already. No. This concept that we have, this development of the concept that Jesus was fully man and he was fully God, was not a well-developed concept in the early church. This had to be taught and instructed to people, and John is doing this in his gospel. So everybody has a little bit of a different view here because of the themes that they're trying to to bring forth. The other sub-themes that John has is he contrasts light with darkness. So he'll say, and Judas went out into the night. Well, what do I care if it's night or day? Because he's contrasting the darkness, he's putting the analogy of the the darkness of Judas with the night time. You will often see that he's talking about the light, the word of God this contrast of light and darkness. And the other thing that John often does is he's he's talking about how the Messiah reveals the Father. How Jesus was revealing the Father. Have you not known me? I've been with you this long and you say, show us the Father. How Jesus reveals the Father is one of of John's sub-themes. So everybody's got a different sub-theme as they're telling this story, which makes sense. We have four different Gospels, four different perspectives, we, we have one to the Jew. Matthew's writing specifically to the Jew, addresses this much as it should be to the Jew. There's only two, there's only two uh, accounts of the, the genealogy of Jesus. And we will go through this in detail and show the difference between them. And why the difference? Because Matthew feels compelled to do this because he's writing to the Jew. And Matthew dates his genealogy back where? Not to Adam. He dates his genealogy back to Abraham. Because that's all that's of issue to the Jew. Whereas Luke dates, brings the genealogy of Jesus right back to Adam, right from God. Because he's dealing with this. He's going to say, I'm, you know, I'm recording this right on back. And Luke gives a perspective, and Matthew gives a perspective in the genealogies, which is so fascinating. In much of this, we will look at this from the Messianic perspective, looking at it from a Jewish perspective. We'll look at this. Okay, so let, let's, let's read on verse 4, Luke chapter 1, verse 4. <clears throat> so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So Theophilus had been taught some things, and he's trying to bring in more of the exact truth about what was taught. And this is tremendous that we have this book, that we have this educated man, unlike the other the other uh, uh, apostles that weren't particularly educated, this man was really quite educated, and now he's coming and he's recording for us. He wasn't an eyewitness. He says that. 
But sometimes eyewitness, you would think, oh, an eyewitness can tell the story better. Well, maybe not. Why? Because an eyewitness has his or her own perspective on something. I saw it, I saw it this way. Whereas an, an historian, like Luke is, is, is dealing with here, doesn't just talk with one individual and in, in getting their perspective. He's talking with a multitude of individuals and getting a more holistic view of what went on. Because, because an individual who sees an event has a view. But this man has interviewed many people, so he's going to the eyewitnesses and recording what's going on. All right, let's, let's look in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiha. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Okay, so he now is going to, after this introduction, Luke has a small introduction. He starts, he's starting with John the Baptist. He starts telling us about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was about six months older, five or six months older than Jesus. And he tells us about John the Baptist. And he says, he, 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 very specifically, because he's an historian, he's telling us what year this is taking place. He says, in the days of Herod, king of, Ju- of Judea. So he lists this. So often in history they would say, during the reign of so-and-so. So then immediately you get a time frame. What are we dealing with here? So he says, in the days of Herod, he says there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiha. And if you, if you, go, if you go to uh, 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 First Chronicles, First Chronicles, I think it's First Chronicles 24, First Chronicles 29, you see the divisions of the priests. There were 24 divisions. So there was the high priest, and then David, as instructed by God, as he's setting things up for the temple. Remember, eventually his son Solomon was going to build a temple, but David prescribed the order. And David was taught by God for the prescribed order. There were to be 24 divisions of the priests. So head of each of those divisions, so you had the high priest and head of, over each of those divisions, then you had a chief priest over head of each of those 24 divisions. And within each of those 24 divisions, it was constituted by what were called priests. So you just had the common priest was within each one of those 24 divisions. One of those divisions was the division of Abiha. Zechariah was of that division of Abiha. It was one of 24 divisions. And their job, in addition to the normal priestly service, which had to do with instruction, which had to do with offering up sacrifices on behalf for, for other people, or with having to do all the things that a priest had to do, for two weeks a year, they had to serve in the temple. For two weeks a year. And generally what would happen was, with, within this particular group, one out of every 24 groups, it was chosen by lot what they would do, and they would generally do that specific task two weeks a year, every year, for their entire life as a priest. From the age 30 to the age of 50, they would serve as a priest where they would do this work. They would do this work as as the life of the priest. And, And each one had a prescribed duty, duty for two weeks. 
And then the next year, for two weeks, they would serve within that temple. And it says that there was this man, Zechariah, and he was the division of Abiha. And then it says his wife also was of the daughters of Aaron. So not just descendants of Levi, but you, you had to be of... So, so Levi, not just the descendants from, from the Levites, which was, was one particular branch of the twelve, a portion of that branch of the twelve was, was uh, um, of the tribe of Aaron. And it was from that descendancy that the priests came. So it was the Levites served in the temple compound, but the priesthood, the priesthood came from Aaron. Okay, so Aaron was a, was a descendant from, from the Levites, as was Moses, because Moses was, was the brother of Aaron. But this lineage coming from Aaron now was going to be the priesthood. And so Elizabeth herself was also from Aaron, as was, as was Zechariah. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Interesting verse. It says they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. This does not mean that they were sinless. It does not mean that they were sinless. It just means that if they sinned, they offered up the prescribed sacrifice as an atonement for their sins. That's what it means. That's what it meant to walk blamelessly. To, they were righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. This is what it means. It doesn't mean sinless. It means that when they committed a sin, they offered this up the sacrifice. That they tried to walk with God as best as they could, and when they stumbled, they offered up a sacrifice. This is what it meant. It's the same in our lives. It is the same with us. You know, Christians are not perfect. We are the ones that are supposed to go back and say, God, help me. Let me, let me close for today with reading a portion from uh, Charles Spurgeon when he's talking about, about this sort of thing. And the blessing that comes by walking in God's ways, the blessing that you will bring upon your family. If you want to have a good family, you want to have a good home, you want to have a good life, there is a prescribed way to do this. Listen to this. He's reflecting on this verse from Proverbs 3, verse 33, which says, He blesseth the habitation of the just. He fears the Lord, and therefore he comes under the divine protection, even as to the, even as to the roof which covers himself and his family. His home is an abode of love, a school of holy training, a place of heavenly light. In it there is a family altar, where the name of the Lord is daily had in reverence. Therefore, the Lord blesses his habitation. It may be a humble cottage or a lordly mansion, but the Lord's blessing comes because of the character of the inhabitant and not because of the size of the dwelling. That house is the most blessed in which the master and the mistress are God-fearing people, but a son or daughter or even a servant may bring a blessing on a whole household. The Lord often preserves, prospers, and provides for a family for the sake of one or two in it who are just persons in His esteem because His grace has made them so. Beloved, let us have Jesus for our constant guest, even as the sisters of Bethany had, and then we shall be blessed indeed. So you see this picture 
of what brings blessing upon a home. Here you see this life of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth. That even though they had no children, their home was blessed. Because they walked according to God's order, as it says, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. You set your house in this prescribed pattern where you have a time where as a couple you get together and you pray. Where as a family you get together. You set the pattern. Now how your children go, go is ultimately between them and God. You can provide the context in which they can think. The context in which they can see things. Talking about the Lord. Praying. But they are individuals. They, have, they can choose their way. This is what God prescribes. And God loves us enough to allow each of us to choose the way that we will walk. But you will have blessing in your home if you set God as the right way and begin to walk righteously in this. That means that when you sin, you ask God to forgive you. That you set up the pattern and the lifestyle. And some of you may not have had this opportunity to see this growing up. I never had this growing up. I didn't come from a Christian home. I had a good home. My father provided for us, and he, he thought that that's what a man does. If a man is out providing for his family, he's doing the right thing. And that was a generation, and I understand that. And he was a good father. As good as what he knew to be. Never taught me about God, but he himself didn't have God. My mother never taught me about God, but I can't blame her. She herself never had God at that time. They did the best they knew how to do. And I'm thankful for them and I love them. And I don't judge them for not doing something for me that they never really understood themselves. But God taught me. God brought me into the church. I entered up the discipleship program in the church. I learned these things in the body of Christ. I learned these as a believer. And I brought them into my home. And it's brought tremendous blessing into my home. You do this thing. And then I, then I found a wife that was like-minded and she wanted the same things. My wife and I have had all sorts of di- disagreements, but we've ne- never disagreed on this point as to having a family altar in a sense, of having family devotions, of what we should be teaching our children about God, about having our individual times in the Lord and then getting together every day and praying together. This we've never disagreed on. And I thank God that we've had this you can have this and you can call down this blessing upon your home if you walk uprightly in God's ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word as we begin to look into this. Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word and give us the richness that, we can, that can be had from the scriptures, from the word of God. Father, teach us about the life of Jesus Teach us about the life of of men and women that love you, that honor you, that honor your word. Father, thank you for this truth that there was a couple that you said was walking righteously and blamelessly in the sight of God. Father, thank you for that, that this can be attained. Father, that we can walk with you. Father, I pray for these young people that you would establish them in good families and in good homes, that you would do this so that they could have this. Father, I pray your blessing to be upon them in that, that you would teach them your ways. Father, that they could learn what it is to have this family time together, to learn what it is to pray together. Father, that you would lead young women 
to find young men that, that love the Lord. Father, that they wouldn't compromise in this. And Father, that these young men would walk in the manner that you would have them walk in. Father, I pray for your grace to be poured out here in their lives. Father, thank you for your word. Open it up to us, I pray, that our lives may be conformed to the, to the image of Jesus. And Lord, I commit them to you. Do good in their lives, I pray. May they submit to you and to your word. In the name of Jesus, amen.